You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Just about one year before I recorded this podcast with Dr. Sue Vanderwood, she was arriving in Tasmania, Australia to begin a year of sabbatical research. And I was um, studying in a laboratory of Scott Carver. I was going to learn statistical analysis that would help me with some studies that I've been doing that are related to disease ecology and One Health topics. And I was very um, excited about um, visiting other scientists in Australia during the time of my visit, including um, somebody named Eddie Holmes, who's at University of Sydney. He's uh, also a disease ecologist, a very one of the most famous folks looking at spillover events. And um, I was going to, I contacted him and pestered him and was going to meet him in the middle of March. But in the background of the start of her sabbatical, news began to emerge about what we now know is the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was in Wuhan, China. It was of great concern to University of Tasmania, who had a lot of students from China. Um, And I was following the news, of course, and com- communicating with Dr. Holmes and other people. I was gonna visit um, uh, other colleagues at University of Queensland the same week. And so things were starting to get tense, but we were still planning to do the visit. And then the Friday before my, I was gonna leave on Sunday, I got a notification from the US Department of State saying, all Fulbright scholars need to come home immediately. Cancel your sabbatical, you're done. And so, I was just shocked because I had not considered, oh, this pandemic is going to affect me. Um, and so I went on a long bike ride that weekend, my last weekend in, in Australia. And, um, you know, it was really, I really reflected because I knew when I came back to Colorado State, I was going to really dive into the um, leadership at the One Health Institute and develop programs. And I had a whole plan in my mind of what that was going to mean. Um, And then here, all of these plans were just immediately unfolding because of a One Health crisis. And of course, you know that COVID-19 is emerged as a zoonotic transmission between people and um, some animal species is not quite known yet. And it probably resulted from environmental overlap between humans and animals. So here I am launching my One Health directorship in the middle of a pandemic that was based on this big One Health crisis. So it really was a transformative experience for me in the context of thinking about One Health and the importance and the need to really look at these things in a very systematic way and engage many different individuals in trying to predict or mitigate these types of global problems. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Sue Vanderwood, director of the One Health Institute at Colorado State University, about the One Health approach in medicine and research. According to the CDC, One Health is a concept that recognizes that the health of people is closely connected to the health of animals and our shared environment. At the One Health Institute, Dr. Vanderwood helps facilitate discussions and create research teams to find solutions to One Health problems. Being that animals play a key role in the One Health approach, we also talked to Dr. Vanderwood about the importance of comparative medicine for informing human health and why animals are the key to understanding many human diseases and conditions. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, 
And this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. All right. Well, thank you, Sue, for agreeing to have this conversation with me. Well, thanks, Hannah, for the invite. I'm excited to do my first ever podcast. <laughs> well, I hope it will be an enjoyable experience for you. And so when you when you say the the One Health concept, can you expand on what that is? Because I know for me specifically, I had no idea what One Health was until I came to Colorado State. Yes. And One Health is not immediately obvious from the name of what it's, how it's titled, what it means. And in fact, a lot of the work I've been doing this first six months or so as the director is to try to define it for Colorado State and for um, all of our stakeholders. So if you go back to basics and think about what the CDC or USDA or other kind of AVMA think tank organizations have thought about One Health, it's defined most commonly as um, processes that are at the intersection of human, animal, and environmental health. And so COVID is a great example of that, right? Because it it really involves the environment that people and animals are living in where they wouldn't necessarily be in the same spot, but then there they were, and then there was a zoonotic disease. And so that's one of the more classical ones, but it also involves agricultural issues, climate change in one health, um, restoration, conservation, um, underserved populations, human animal interactions. So things where you can define an environment, um, animal and people health, or human health that are intersecting, that's that's one health. And because of the nature of the very large um, group of issues that fall under that, it it is almost always a transdisciplinary effort that social scientists and basic scientists, environmental scientists and natural scientists will be working together, politicians, community. Um, so it's a very kind of, uh, bird's eye, very high level view with a lot of moving parts and, and trying to coordinate synergistic activities. So that's the One Health concept and the One Health Institute will be looking at different problems um, from a number of different lenses in that, that falls in that area, particularly at Colorado State where we have um, expertise that's unique and, and are already engaged in that and trying to build those programs. Right. And so you come back from Australia, you're thrown into this director role, which you knew you, that was going to be happening. You just were expecting it to come after this long sabbatical, correct? Yes. And um, right. to work a little bit. In fact, one of the reasons I was going to be making these visits while I was in Australia was to try to get some context of more from the global perspective of some of the leaders in, in the world on One Health. And really was attempting to wrap my head around the concept and, and where CSU could fit into that. So, um, yeah, and it's been a huge difference from what I expected. I mean, we can't meet and network, which is really important. Um, I had to recalibrate how to engage with stakeholders. And so it's been a lot more one-on-one -on -one or small group interactions on Zoom or via phone versus getting together in larger groups. Um, but on the other hand, it's provided an opportunity to do this in the context when One Health is now on everybody's tongue. So I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago with a lot of medical doctors um, looking at um, translational science issues, and they were all talking about the importance of One Health. 
which was very gratifying to know that all of a sudden it's it's a phenomenon and a phrase that's recognized by not only veterinarians and people who have been practitioners for a long time, but medical doctors and even in the tw uh, 2021 federal legislation that was just passed by Congress, there's um, there's a framework for developing One Health uh, programs and supporting One Health research to avoid future pandemics and other One Health issues. Right, right. And to, to give some context for people that are listening to this, this One Health concept is important generally across medical and, and research in general, but important to the Center for Healthy Aging as well, because it's very similar to the approach that we take in the work that we're doing. And, and that's something I, I kind of want to get your opinion on too, because for instance, by the time this episode releases, uh, listeners will have heard about our plans for a paired human dog biobank. And that in and of itself is a, a one health kind of approach to a study, because what we're interested in doing with that is studying dogs and humans that share the same environment and looking for biomarkers that contribute to the aging process in dogs to inform human health, but also to help dogs too, um, and, and have, help them have longer and healthier lives. And so what I'm getting at here is you are a veterinarian trained as a veterinarian. Nicole Earhart, our director at the Center for Healthy Aging, is also a trained veterinarian. So, so I'm wondering if you can tell us why is it important that we have a comparative medicine looking to dogs and cats and other animals to inform the things that you do at the One Health Institute, but also what we're doing at the Center for Healthy Aging? Yeah, that's a great um, overview of I would say a little bit of a subspecialty of One Health. And in the other part of the messaging I've been doing here is not only to talk broadly, like we just have about One Health context, but to, to also point out that there's like a sec second pillar of One Health that is maybe better understood in the context of One Health and One Medicine. And that exactly what you said, that there are companion animals in particular, but it can also be extended to other animal species, particularly horses or other species we tend to treat on an individual versus a herd basis. Um, there are many, many diseases that occur naturally in our, our companion animals that mirror mimic the diseases in humans. And um, so for example, cancers have probably been studied most closely in this way in the, the Flint Animal Cancer Center here at Colorado State has been a, a worldwide leader in this concept, but dogs get certain types of cancers that are identical to cancers that people get. And by evaluating the clinical attributes, the driving factors of what might cause a certain type of tumor in a dog, we can then answer some questions that we can in people. And there are some advantages to doing this besides the fact that we get to learn about the dog and improve canine health. There's also certain things we can do in terms of clinical research um, with animals that are less easily um, pursued in people. For one thing, there's a lot less federal restrictions and HIPAA privacy, et cetera. Um, dog owners, cat owners, horse owners are often very eager to participate in the latest trials for clinical therapy. So they, they are very good at um, adhering to the protocols and um, the lifespan of those animals is shorter than humans. 
So you get a compressed time scale for looking at the factors that impact them. Um, many people think about animal models or animal research as using lab rats and lab mice. And those can be really important studies in looking at very basic features of certain diseases. And there are certain utilizations of those rodent species that are quite important, but we're finding that they don't always replicate human disease. And that doesn't really surprise a veterinarian because a mouse weighs 25 grams and it lives for two years and it, it, gives, you know, it's sexually mature at eight weeks. So that's, and their heart rates are 600 beats per minute. So there's a lot of differences between them um, and humans. They are li living sentient beings and they have a lot of the same processes. And if you looked at a microscope at their tissues, you wouldn't be able to tell some of their tissues from human organs in terms of the cellular structure. However, they're just because of the differences in their physiology and biology. They're not good models for a lot of things. Now, of course, we're not identical to dogs and cats, but they do live quite a bit longer. They live in our environments. They often eat our food. They can sleep in our beds. Um, so they have similarities with us um, in terms of our environment that these laboratory animals do not. So I would say, I think this is, you brought up the point that Dr. Earhart and I are veterinarians. And so I think it's not, really surprised that veterinarians are leading a lot of One Health and some of these translational um, studies because we, we're we really trained to understand those comparative differences from the time we enter veterinary school. We, right. um, we study biology, physiology, health and disease of all these different species. And that forces you to kind of think about what's the same about these species and what's different. That's how you have to learn all that huge volume of information. And then the other piece that is, often overlooked is that all the veterinarians I've ever met are human beings. So um, the fact that we're learning about all these things in animals, we almost always apply them to our own circumstances or our family's circumstances and immediately think about, oh, that's the lymphoma that my grandmother had and I see it now in a dog or cat. So you're already making all those connections and naturally becoming a comparative scientist. And you're thinking more globally about how you would maybe make um, advances in these things to, to benefit all species. So um, yeah, I, I think it's really exciting that uh, we have veterinarian leading, leading the Center for Healthy Aging because um, she's bringing a really unique component to the, the platform of your institute or your center that I think is really gonna make it unique. Right. I know when I was an undergraduate student in genetics, when we thought, when I thought of comparative studies, I did not think about larger organisms so much. I thought about, you know, C. elegans, the worms. I thought about mice. I thought about Drosophila fruit flies because genetics is so, you know, molecular based as a study. And those are the, the systems you go to, to study it. But it wasn't until I came to Colorado State and we have this amazing veterinary school here that we see that crossover between what these companion animals are at the veterinary school and, and being enrolled in all these clinical trials over there, collaborating with things that we're trying to do on the main campus as well. Yeah, it's a really, um, I think it's provided a lot of opportunities for our veterinary clinicians to participate in these. I just was reading an article about the Colorado, the CVMBS, the Veterinary Medical School Research Day, which is coming up this week, 
virtually, unfortunately, but the um, keynote speaker is gonna be Dr. Stephanie McGrath, who's a veterinary neurologist. She's doing some really amazing studies on canine epilepsy, intractable canine epilepsy, where she's looking at cannabinoids as potential therapies. And that's something that has been tried anecdotally in, in humans, particularly in young kids who are non-responsive to the standard therapies. So she's able to systematically look at this in her canine patients and look at the, meta the metabolites and the mechanism of action that might be responsible for any, um, any benefit. And the early results look promising. The thing I would also say is if the results were not promising, let's say there's absolutely no connection between treatment with CBD and epilepsy, that's really important for us to know too. And this is a study she's initiated in 2016. The impact of this is going to be known for, for dogs probably within a year, and that can be translated over to people. That may seem like a long time, but the standard amount of time it takes for a drug to be entered into the pipeline for testing in humans and actual approval is about 20 years. And often, I don't know, a huge majority, 95% of them fail before they get to the end and it costs billions of dollars. So her studies, while they haven't been inexpensive, have been very successful at providing a huge amount of potential information about whether or not this is a useful approach um, for not only for dogs, but potentially for people. So that I think is a real great example. And as I mentioned, it's, it's true in cancers and it's huge amount of opportunities for us to look at aging process in our pets and to find ways to have them age healthier um, and apply what those learnings are to, to ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think those are two really important points that you just emphasized, which is again, how long it takes to translate science from the lab to humans. If we didn't look to companion animals, like 20 years is what we're looking at. And also the cost behind it, billions of dollars, like you said, in order, if we were to do it that way through human clinical trials versus one year, potentially shorter time span and much cheaper, still expensive, but much cheaper. And I think that's why we're so focused on, on these companion animal studies and why they're so vital to just research in general. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think where we've had hangups with this idea before is it's novel. Like you said, when you were in your study, you know, your studies about animal models, it was C. elegans, a microscopic worm, or, you know, Drosophila, a fly. And these were really important models for understanding key principles of genetics or physiology, regeneration. Um, but when you get into more complex um, processes, like how does a cancer form and how does it respond? What's the interaction between your genetics and how you get cancer? That's something that's really hard to study, even in a mouse, um, where we have the, the naturally occurring process um, in animal species that may have more similarities to us, both genetically and environmentally, um, in their microbiome, et cetera, we should really be taking advantage of that. And getting that message across is starting to happen. It's starting to happen in the medical profession. It's starting to happen at NIH. Um, it just needs more socialization and more acceptance with some great examples, like I just mentioned with Dr. McGrath and what's going on with the Animal Cancer Center and what is likely to be a really successful um, program initiated at the Center for Healthy Aging. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm wondering if you can take us through just a couple of examples of some One Health studies that you're either involved in at the One Health Institute or that you just know of broadly that are happening in the the United States. And I know one that you've mentioned to me in the past is this Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. So can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of who are the principal inv- investigators for that one and what they're looking at? Sure. Um, that's a really exciting study that's centered and supported by the Morris Animal Foundation, which is maybe a lot of people call it the NIH for Animals. It's a funding uh, organization that is raises all of its uh, funds through philanthropy to study and promote cures for animal diseases, mostly in dogs, cats, horses. It has a wildlife division as well. The principal investigator in that study is Dr. Rodney Page. He's the director of the Flint Animal Cancer Center. Um, the program is very ambitious. They are intend to enroll, I believe it's 10,000 golden retrievers between the years of their first year of life. Um, it takes a phenomenal amount of dedication from, from the owners because they have to fill out an exhaustive form. Um, they have to update the form every year. It asks everything from, you know, what are what kind of household cleaning products do you use? do you use to what does your pet eat? How much does it, how do you exercise? Where do you live? What trips have you taken to the veterinarian, et cetera. And then the veterinarians need to do it that are um, participating uh, with their owners, fill out another exhaustive survey. They take samples, they provide physical exam information. And if the animal has diseases, all that information is recorded in a huge database that's managed by the Morris Animal Foundation. The point of this study it's a, it's a lifetime longitudinal study of one specific breed of dogs, which has our dog breeds have some similarities in their genetic makeup. They're not exactly as closely related as inbred mice species, but they're more closely related than say the average human would be to another human. And so there's some elimination of genetic variability there, but there's enough variability that that um, provides a more um, feasible context relative to people. Um, So the things that will come out of this study are what are the diseases that occur at what age? Are they related to sex? Are they related to somehow the environment? Um, Are there in the samples that are being taken, you can evaluate many, many different biochemical molecular markers to look for potentially markers that you could do a blood test and say, well, 90% of the, of the um, golden retrievers in the study have this characteristic um, developed you know, kidney disease by the age of 10. And so we'll have be able to do more predictive precision medicine in those animals. It will certainly inform medicine for other dog breeds and potentially other species like cats and et cetera. And then a lot of that information will be invaluable for study of diseases in human beings as well. And because again, this is would be a very difficult study. There, there's a Framingham study out of Boston, Massachusetts that is similar to this, but that's a questionnaire that gets sent to people once a year. There's really no association with collection of materials um, and it's a lot less intensive uh, type of survey. So the amount of information that will be available for this is phenomenal. I believe they have enrolled all of the the participants and they're from all 50 states across the U.S. and potentially outside the U.S. Um, and the compliance with it has been amazing. In other words, the owners are, you know, religious and how they're participating and 
they are the veterinarians as well. So it's going to be a tremendously accurate database with, with much information we can glean about um, just the descriptive characteristics, but also we'll be able to go back to the sampling and, and find, I think, some exciting new ways to diagnose and predict diseases. Right. That will be a huge bank of data that we can consistently refer back to and in, in, in the future. And also another point to raise is that once you have a, a bank of data like that, there it's endless how many potential studies you could come up with based on those data. Exactly. It's only, you know, limited by our imagination and our funding and our time. Um, I would mention that I'm very proud to say that one of the graduates of the Colorado State University DVM PhD combined program, um, Dr. Julie Labadee, is the um, is the head epidemiologist statistician for that project. So um, she's one of one of our many star students coming out of that, and she worked a bit as a postdoctoral fellow at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, and now she's back um, working in Colorado. Well, she's actually still virtual, but she's um, she's going to be assisting with that. So that's uh, that's a very exciting outcome for for our training program and also for the program generally. That's wonderful. So what, what else at the One Health Institute, what studies are you really proud to be overseeing there? Yeah, that's great. And I would, I would couch it by saying overseeing maybe a strong word. Um, <laughs> a lot of the things we promote are to help with networking opportunities and maybe a little bit of seed funding. We do have a couple of the um, projects that we highlight frequently because they've been very successful. And these, these were projects that started with a little tiny amount of seed money, money, usually less than $100,000 that resulted in just fantastic outcomes. So one of our more, the more iconic ones and mature projects that started about 2015 is one um, that was led by Dr. Jennifer Barfield in the Department of Biomedical Sciences in the College of Vet Med and Biomedical Sciences, and also with a collaboration from Dr. Luba Pichar in the Warner College of Natural Resources. So the outcome of that study was to reintroduce genetically pure bison to the soapstone prairie, which is a large open space north of um, Fort Collins. And these animals are free of a bacteria called brucella, which um, is a very risky bacteria that can infect cattle herds. So a lot of the bison you see when you're driving up and down the highway, they have a certain percentage of their genes that come from domestic cattle through interbreeding. There are only a few natural herds left, including um, some up in Yellowstone, but they carry this brucella bacteria, and that makes it difficult to introduce them to rangeland where they might affect uh, rancher um, livestock. So what Jennifer did was to re-derive embryos from genetically pure bison, transplant them into the commercial bison that didn't have this infection, using a procedure that would eliminate the bacteria have a number of live births and then reintroduce them to this iconic area in celebration with indigenous uh, communities that were just, you know, it was, it was so meaningful for that to occur. And then Leba's work is to, um, to assess how the introduction of these animals impacts the rangeland as well as um, utilization of that site by visitors. So, really exciting project that's become just nationally known. The herd has a hundred bison now, and there's so many there that they're actually now able to disperse them to other conservation sites. Um, 
So that's, I guess, a mature project that's really matured into an amazing outcome that you wouldn't even probably think it was a One Health project, but it involves humans, animals, and environment and disease. So a um, couple of ongoing projects I'll just briefly mention um, is one led by Cheryl Magsiman, one of our faculty environmental radiological health sciences that is looking at the impacts of um, air quality on dairy cattle, milk production and health. And we know that air quality measures impact uh, agricultural worker health, um, cause pulmonary disease. So her question was, what is it doing to cattle? And she's got some preliminary data suggesting that indeed high ozone levels correlate with a decrease in milk production and also inflammatory profiles in cattle. So that's really important because with the wildfires we've just had this summer, clearly there's been really degradation of air quality and that is going to impact some of our agricultural uh, productivity. And it's important for, I think the agricultural community to understand that the, the air quality around them not only affects their own health, but their animal health as well. And then maybe one final one I'll mention is um, a project led by Dr. Gilbert John, who's um, assistant dean for research in the College of Vet Medicine. And he's working with collaborators, um, Tom Johnson in the Environmental Radiological Health Sciences. And they're looking at um, a community, a Navajo community on, in Shiprock, Arizona, that has a lot of livestock and equine horse um, herds. And the land that they, Occupy is impacted by uh, legacy uranium mining and also by arsenic contamination. So they're looking at um, the well water that livestock can can use on that site is contaminated with or potentially contaminated with both of those compounds. So how is that impacting the livestock health? And of course, the livestock are also used by the um, community as food and resources, how does it, how it might impact them as well. But also there's a social science aspect of that project to look at what's the legacy of the mining on kind of the health and well-being beyond the animals um, in that community. So that's unfortunately had to be, um, it's an inactive phase because COVID has disrupted that community dramatically, but it's an example of especially um, there, there are many instances where underserved communities, rural communities um, have more One Health type problems and can be served by this type of approach. And that'll be another area we'll, where we're expanding our efforts. Wow. My brain is going in like five different places right now based on those projects you just described, because not only do you have the basic human animal disease environment connection that is the one health approach but you have all of these other i don't even know the word for it all of these other strands of inquiry that you're you're melding in with these studies in terms of social sciences you know to monitor health over time uh indigenous peoples and and you know what has happened to their lands over the course of hundreds of years and rectifying issues that have come about because of modern age and even uranium mining that's bringing up like so much of the history of the American West and, and our relationship with the environment is mining the environment for its resources. And here we're seeing the effects of that in what you're, you're studying now and trying to remedy some of the effects of that. So I'm just shocked <laughs> in the best way. And I'm, 
I just love to hear that we're, we're just diverting resources and time and attention and talent towards problems like this and trying to develop these solutions for very complex problems. Yeah, thank you, Beth. I, I think that's right. And I, I would say these projects all started way before I was director and they are really independently managed by the PIs that I mentioned and there are other people involved with them. I'm just kind of keeping tabs on what's going on with them so that in the future we can invest in these type of projects managed by faculty for these really important projects. And our role in the One Health Institute will be to define, is it really One Health and how is the transdisciplinary interactions occurring and how can we support this work to, to come to fruition and find solutions. Uh, so we have reached out to the Fort Collins, City of Fort Collins, some really exciting projects we're doing with them. One is a pilot project we decided we could do during the, the um, pandemic with, we had about nearly 50 students sign up to participate in multidisciplinary teams. And they're part, we're partnering with the city as well as CSU faculty to look at three different sites in Fort Collins that could be redeveloped. One is a parcel of vacant land and the other two would be repurposed commercial sites. And in the redevelopment process, how could you consider whatever you redevelop there incorporating principles of One Health? So how could you support human, animal, and environmental health in that site? So that's really exciting. We're, we're seeing how we can bring these teams together and, and how, what practices we can use to get the groups working well, but also the outcomes of this might be to develop more substantive projects with the city that come to fruition in this area. Um, and it could either promote human health through nature in the city type programs that the city already has, um, potentially by providing more sites for exercise and more opportunities for people to get outdoors. Um, it could promote environmental health, of course, by um, making sure we restore natural habitat and um, have land that is um, well managed and natural for this area. And then the type of animal interactions we're looking at are companion animal interactions to use the space. Of course, the, um, the wild animals and insects and birds that might occupy open space and then uh, and the biodiversity of the animals there. And then agricultural animals, we are gonna look a little bit at backyard farming and um, backyard poultry and the practicality of that in community gardens. So those are like, little things we're trying to do that really came with, after talking to the city that are local demonstration projects. I think the other group that we're work, I hope to work with is our extension uh, agents across the state. So we can look, we can work locally in Colorado. One Health typically, and a lot of One Health Institutes, there's work that's done globally. And you can see from the SARS epidemic, which started in China and Ebola in Africa, that a lot of the zoonotic disease emergence occur in other sites than the US. Um, so I think eventually we'll get to that type of platform as well, where we're active around the world. But the baby steps during the pandemic we're taking are really to look at what can we do in our community, what can we do in our state, and what can we do regionally with some of the ties that have already been built. I think that's wonderful. And it's also making me think uh, that we're 
we're all stewards of this planet that we live on. That's also the takeaway that I'm having from this conversation is that yes, we have all of these interactions with the foods that we eat and the animals we have around us and the diseases and germs that are constantly around us at any time, but we're all responsible for working together to come up with these solutions. Because as it sounds like you take a very transdisciplinary approach to the work that you do, and that's pretty inherent to the the one health approach as it is. Yeah, it really is. And the other thing that is so apparent, again, looking at COVID, we knew what we had, we could have done to, to prevent it from getting to the U.S. and to mitigate the outbreak we've had here. But even though the books were on the shelf to tell us what to do, and there were even personnel that could have been deployed, we didn't do that, right? So a lot of these issues come down to social and behavioral issues and you know, you know, the tremendous conflict we have currently within our country. Um, that's been discouraging, honestly, about how can you unify and work together. And so that's the other theme we're thinking of is how can we use One Health solutions to those kind of more societal problems? And that's going to require our psychologists and social scientists and politicians and people with, um, you know, much different expertise than we think of when we think of biomedical science. But without those people guiding us in processes, we won't know what to do with the discoveries or the interventions we're doing on kind of in the laboratory. And if it will fail to be impactful unless we can use approaches that will be accepted by people who have to implement the actual strategies that we might recommend. Absolutely. Yeah. We just recorded a podcast with Jenny Cross talking about team science and why team science is so necessary. And this is exact same kind of takeaway is we need people with all different perspectives coming to the table to address these problems. Yeah. And Jenny, close partner of mine and, um, she, um, is, we're very engaged in having her help us to develop the teams that we're going to put together, you know, in the future so that they're collaborative and highly functional and have the processes they need. So yeah, absolutely. That's wonderful. So I want to ask specifically if the One Health Institute is involved or knows of any aging projects that are, that take a One Health approach or a One Medicine approach. Yes. Well, there's certainly, um, you know, the, the biobank and some of the projects that I'm sure you've featured on other podcasts are, are going to be a good launching point. And there are some studies going on elsewhere. There's one in, in Seattle, I believe that's a, a big study looking at aging of our companion animals. Um, there are more traditional studies, I think, that are used, looking at factors associated with aging in more traditional animal models. But I think the, the field is really open for this kind of study. Um, I guess I guess one kind of weird example that you may not know about is that one of the animals studied in aging research that's very unusual is the naked mole rat because hmm. they are rodents that live 20 years of age. So they're studied for their capacity to have this great longevity and what exactly about their physiology results in that lifespan. Um, but in terms of looking, taking advantage of the companion animals in our in our households, there's really not been a lot of work. I actually, my research in my own laboratory is relates to, um, to cat viruses and cat diseases. So I wanna be an advocate that we include cats in this story as well. 
We always think about the dogs because they are a bit easier to manipulate, as we know from their behavior, than our cats who have their own ways of doing things. But they certainly have exposures and households and have different attributes that would be really interesting to look at them as well. They're usually not as easy to get into the vet clinic and take a blood sample. And that's one reason that's hindered us, but we could be creative about ways that we evaluate them as well. Mm -hmm. That actually brings up where I want to go next, which is uh, to kind of tie this all together that your research is in ecology of infectious diseases. So when it comes to thinking, you know, who, who is suited to be a director of a one health Institute, seems like you were the perfect person to end up in this role. So can you tell us a little bit about your research and kind of how that led you to what you're doing now? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so I have quite a few different projects going on in my laboratory, but the major focus of our research over the last 10 years has been disease transmission between different species of felids. And particularly, we've studied free-ranging mountain lions or puma in North America, um, bobcats that overlap in the same territory, which are also free-ranging, and then our domestic house cats. And um, the interaction between those three species, both on the ecological level, and then also what happens when one of those species, and it's typically the puma, is exposed to a bobcat or domestic cat virus. And exposure um, occurs via predation, typically, or antagonistic behavior, where the puma is usually the victor. So we haven't recorded any cases of cross-species disease transmission from a puma back to a cat, because that's just not a typical outcome that would occur from an interaction between them. But we have documented numerous examples of viruses and other microbes from bobcats and, and domestic cats being transmitted to pumas. We study that by looking at the genetic aspects of the infections that occur in pumas. So we get blood samples from many collaborators across the US who are, who are studying the natural behavior and natural biology and management of pumas in their habitat. And then we evaluate that for different evidence of infections that we can then trace back to domestic cats. So it isn't, um, I'm just publishing an article with two colleagues that um, point out that predators are more, have a susceptibility to, to spillover diseases that hasn't really been acknowledged by the ecology community or maybe generally, because part of their survival is dependent upon contact with other species, often that might have pathogens that they could be exposed to. So that's really been the thrust of what my lab has studied, as well as how our human in incursion into the habitat of the puma has changed both their biology and their disease susceptibility and, um, and the genetics of the different species and how that relates to their disease susceptibility. Um, and it's been very transdisciplinary work. That may be the part that's prepared me the best for being a One Health Institute director, where we've worked with field biologists and ecologists and mathematicians, statisticians, disease modelers. Um, and a lot of what I do is not so much in the laboratory, it's negotiating with people and working out strategies for us to work together and working with Jenny Cross and her students, honestly, to make sure we can be as productive as possible. That's fantastic. Your work reminds me of this book I had to read in undergrad, again, in genetics. It was called Tears of the Cheetah. Have you yeah. heard of that? I yes. Have. The author of that book is Steve O'Brien. He mm -hmm. is a famous geneticist that worked at the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute. He had a strong fascination to big cats. And 
he was one of my mentors for a summer research project that I did when I was a veterinary student. So very charismatic guy who really brilliant man um, who's done a lot to promote translational research, honestly, through his work um, on big cats and disease ecology in the species. Gosh, the world is just so small that yeah. you know someone that I had to read a book from when I was in college. And I believe for those who are listening, it was, I remember it was a lot of different chapters of different animals and um, really like population genetics work to try and save these species that were on the brink of going extinct because they weren't reproducing anymore and all these, you know, being hunted and being poached and what you can do in genetics to kind of solve those issues. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, one last question for you, and then I will let you go. This is the question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, which is what is your best advice for healthy aging based on where you sit in the work that you do? Great. And you did give me this question in advance so I could think about it. This was the hardest question, honestly. Um, <laughs> I, of course, personalize, well, maybe not a course, but I personalized it and thought, well, what makes me, you know, feel like I, what I want to do as I age. And I think that's um, maybe coming to uh, a peace with yourself and um, acknowledging like what's important in life. And I think this past year certainly brought that home to everybody, right? So family, having shelter. Um, and then the other piece of it is I've done, been doing a lot of reading because I am becoming older, like we all do, um, and, and wondering how that's going to be when I lose some of the capabilities I have either mentally or physically. And um, one of the things that's been kind of helpful to, to read is that there are quite a lot of studies or some studies showing that as you age, you actually become happier, which is a little bit counterintuitive, that some of the explanation for that is you spend less time doing things that you know you don't want to do. And so you can do more things you enjoy and um, derive more pleasure. So this isn't really a translational thing so much, but it may involve like next, I'm really looking forward to this spring to getting some baby chicks or baby uh, turkeys so I can raise them. And so that's how my human animal interactions is going to feed my, my enjoyment and healthy aging and, um, so I'm not sure that exactly answered your question. It's more philosophical and personal opinion than a scientific um, assessment. That's totally okay. Because I think that's still just as important. People think of need to think of how we want to spend our energy and conserve our energy for the things that we really care about. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sue, for these last 45 minutes. I really enjoyed this conversation and I learned a lot from you. So thank you. Thanks, Hannah, for inviting me. It's been very fun to talk to you and um, to talk about the things I'm very passionate about. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.